I was hard pressed to name it. It was an underlying syndrome of sorts that permeates my very being. It operates like a drone, a dull droning sound, always present, that most of the time is drowned out by my higher pitches of optimism and hope. I now know it to be black fatigue. This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Group podcast for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. My name is Mary Frances Winters, and I will be your host for this series where we will explore the many layers of Black fatigue. Hello, 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 and welcome to my very first podcast. I have never done a podcast before, uh, but I'm loving podcasts uh, now that I have discovered them. And I am so honored today as my first guest to discuss this phenomenon that I write about in my new book, Black Fatigue. I am so honored to, to, um, to welcome Dr. Tara Doty. Dr. Tara is an amazing woman who is, has her own business. She is um, a black, black woman-owned business, as I am as well. So I'm partial to black women-owned business. <laughs> Uh, and I am just thrilled that you are going to be my guest to talk about um, Black fatigue, uh, to talk about how it plays out uh, for families and children, because I know that that is your life's work. Dr. Tara um, is a clinical psychologist, and she has her PhD from HU, right? Howard yeah. University. Oh, the other. No, the, the real, no, the real HU. The real, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the real HU. Don't know. Set me straight now, set me straight. Okay, I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. So I'm going to start by having you, you know, just share with us um, who you are, talk, talk to me about your journey, um, and we'll, we'll just get into the conversation that way because you have an amazing background and um, an amazing journey uh, to where you are today. So just tell us about who you are. Okay, thank you so much. First, just thank you so much. It's such an honor to be sitting alongside you. And then even more of an honor to hear that I am the first guest of such a wonderful and dynamic podcast that is uh, coming to coming to a larger audience. So first, thank you so much, Mary Francis, for this opportunity. Um, so everyone tuning in, my name is Dr. Tara Doty, or Dr. Tara for short. And I identify as a human, a, a, a woman, a mother, an entrepreneur, um, a business owner, a Black woman, a Black parent. Um, friend, a daughter. I am a member of the sandwich generation, and I have uh, especially felt that during this time, uh, tending to the needs of both my children and, and my, my mom, too. And so uh, that's a little bit of who I am. And all of those events have kind of shaped how I have gotten to this place today. Um, one of the stories that I often tell is that I am one generation removed from segregation. My mother went to school in a town called Prince Edward County, Virginia. And Prince Edward County was actually uh, the last town to segregate. Rather than segregate, they actually shut the schools down for five years. And so you had numerous black children, white children who were out of school for many, many years, many of whom did not return to school. The, the town actually started a private school, which was funded by state dollars to educate white children. And how we actually got to Baltimore, which is where we, we're be based, is that uh, after being out of school for over a year, my mother was sent to live with her brother at the age of 14 to start school here because they were just unsure. And her, her younger brother, who was about 12 at the time, was sent to Michigan to live with uh, a family friend. 
And so just thinking about the title Black Fatigue and how early it starts for us um, has been something that has been near and dear and personal to, to me and my family for, for generations. And separating, separating, separating families, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Make, having to make the decision to leave your children here and, and have them not be educated or send them away at, the, at such young ages, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, for that background. So tell me about your work. Okay, so my work, I am a proud business owner of Sage Wellness Group. We are a consulting firm that uses a trauma-informed approach to address issues related to equity, parenting, uh, social emotional learning. And that's so important for me because my training at, in clinical psychology was from a trauma-informed background. And when we think about issues related to parenting, equity work, mindfulness, um, student support. One of the things that's often been left out of the conversation really until recently was that trauma-informed or responsive lens, and you talk about that in your book as well. And so uh, it's important for me to interact with everyone that I meet from a trauma-informed lens, meaning that every person that I talk to, every person that I come into contact with is a survivor of something that they would consider to be traumatic. And so part of this work that we do, whether we're working with school districts, whether we're working with nonprofits or corporate agencies, is to support staff in telling a new narrative and then also help them to have a parallel process with those that they serve, be they students, families, parents, clients, guests, however they choose to define them or be defined by them, but define themselves and helping them to rewrite their narrative and, and reclaim uh, their power and owner as a survivor versus victim. So how does that, how does really work. So tell me more about that because, you know, trauma-informed care was something, as I was doing the research for the book, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Tara is speaking about chapter four in the book, which is um, racism literally makes you sick. Yes. And, and so I, I talk about that, but tell us more about, you know, what trauma really is, how it plays out, and how it, how it, um, you know, how it connects to my concept of Black fatigue. Oh, yes. So one of the things that I'm a big fan of is just looking at, so I'm going to use my hand as a visual. And so I, and when we do trainings, I always bring this up. So no matter how fast technology develops, we develop the same way. And so for those of you listening, not watching, I have my forearm up and my forearm, forearm is going to represent our spinal cord. My wrist is going to represent our brainstem. My thumb is that amygdala. And then my four fingers wrapping around my thumb is the prefrontal cortex. And so when we think about trauma, we think about it and how it impacts systems. So the amygdala is our system one brain. That's responsible for our fight or flight or freeze response. So one of the examples that I give or I'll ask people is how many of you or how many of us have ever experienced a discriminating event for any characteristic of ourselves? And, and many people will raise their hands. I will raise my hand. And then I'll ask, the, yes, you're raising your hand. And then I'll ask the question, how many of us in that moment were just frozen. We didn't know what to say. We were processing, did this really happen? Did this person really say this to me? You know, I'm trying to even process what is going on in this moment. We were frozen. So that moment in and of itself was a traumatic event because it activated that system one brain, that brain, that part of our brain that is responsible for making us feel safe. And so in that moment I was frozen. And so, uh, and then my brain has to quickly decide whether or not I'm going to fight against this thing, or am I going to run and flee, or, or do I freeze and take it? And for many people, especially in, in my area, for many children, they have no choice but to freeze and, and receive these uh, macroaggressions. I don't like to call them <laughs> microaggressions, these macroaggressions, you know, from peers, from teachers, from colleagues, from, I mean, coaches, whatever. And so what happens is that that system one brain 
is programmed to connect to that prefrontal cortex. That prefrontal cortex is our, our uh, system two brain, which is responsible for that higher order thinking, that higher order processing. Well, when I've experienced a trauma, when I've experienced an incident of discrimination, learning cannot occur, right? Connection cannot occur. That system one brain, I call it that lovely little filter that comes down and, you know, stops us from saying or doing something because we remember, mm, I still have to work here tomorrow, or I'm still going to be married to this person, or I still need to be in this house. That filter that comes down, well, that filter becomes gone. And so what do I do? I, I don't know what to say. I have emotion dysregulation. I'm either hyper aroused, I'm angry, I'm rageful, or I just shut down. I'm disconnected. That, those are trauma responses to discrimination. And so in our work, we're working to teach people how to stay in what we call within their window of tolerance, how to learn to regulate their emotions. And more importantly, when we think about systemic inequity or racism, how to understand it as from a systemic point, meaning that we can study it and we want to prepare ourselves to learn how to navigate through it versus becoming enraged by it, right? I'm always at that state of anger and, and, and rightfully so, or becoming disconnected and numb and I can't do anything, I, I can't do, I, I cower, I'm kind of cowering through it. And so how do I teach myself, my children, my loved ones how to navigate through this where I'm able to feed into myself and give myself that affirmation, give myself that permission to rewrite this narrative for myself from, from a trauma uh, responsive and also from a, a restorative framework as well. Because I would, I would venture to say the children and even adults, and let me tell me if I'm, if I'm right about this, um, don't even recognize the connection between that incident that was a racist incident and what they're feeling. And so what you're doing is you're helping them to make that connection. Definitely help. Yes. And, and thank you for saying that. Yes. Helping them to, to make that connection. I think that in our society, in our culture, um, we have been groomed to just take it and just power through and remain poised and remain gracious. And, and oftentimes when we look at for children, especially when they report incidents of micro or macro aggressions, it's usually been between eight and 10 before it becomes a report. And so I've experienced this from this person, I've experienced this from this person. And, and the reason being is because people often minimize their experience. And so, um, and so one, of the, one of our protective factors with, with trauma, one of the interesting things uh, that is always sticks out to me is that trauma isn't necessarily about right or wrong, right? The brain doesn't, the brain doesn't compute it that way. The brain computes it in, in uh, feeling, the feeling of safety but then it also computes in, in, is this a normal occurrence? And so your brain's only job is to keep you alive. And so I will normalize dysfunction. I will normalize microaggressions, right? Which is why when we, when we hear events such as George, George Floyd, oh, you know, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Right. right? You know, it's because, because in order for me to survive, I've had to normalize that this is a And so part of that work, post-traumatic recovery, is one, this should not be occurring, you know, allowing myself to feel and then allowing myself to give myself a space. And you talk about this in your book too, the space to practice self-care, the, the space to say self-soothing words for me, to, to myself, the space to, and I call it putting on our self-care seatbelt, the space to when I wake up, what becomes my daily ritual to, to bring in the experience of joy, to bring in the experience of comfort. Can I give myself that permission to? Because also part of black fatigue is, you know, we have to work twice as hard to be invited to the table. And so how does that play out in, in my experience of black rest? You know? Right, yeah. Um, we haven't learned to do that until our bodies literally exhaust themselves. 
I want to talk a little bit about the microaggressions because in the book, um, I don't know if you noticed, I crossed up micro, mm -hmm. the style thing. It's a, so it's a stylistic thing. Anytime I talk about microaggressions in the book, I crossed out micro because they're not micro. No. If internalize that they're micro, then d does that do something to us too in terms of the, the stress and the extra, you know, so it's like, okay, this thing just happened. It felt like micro to, ma so it felt macro to me, but somebody is telling me or, or the society is telling me that it's supposed to be micro, that I'm not supposed to see this as something, um, something big. Yes. Well, on your website, you all have this wonderful article that I love that, that really talks about how we, and I don't know how to say it, but how we pretty up words around equity, right? So we're going to have these, these brave conversations and these courageous conversations and these microaggressions and we're fragile. And so it, it, it really pretties up terms that still puts the onus on the person on the receiving end of this offense. You know, there's nothing micro about a microaggression. There's, you know, there's nothing to, to me, even that, you know, even when we think about courageous conversations, the, the courage is, is in us navigating this, you, you know, the courage is in the action. The action right. and so and so how we how we work too um i think it, it does it very systemically and, and, and we understand that this is from a systemic standpoint but yes i've experienced this and then the first thought becomes and this is something that's often done to black and brown people um well let me let me be forgiving right it was a microaggression they, they didn't really mean it they didn't know that they were doing it right. so, so that automatically programs us to look at this from the lens of then I have, to, I have to be the one to be understanding versus they have to be the one to challenge themselves to do a little bit better. Yeah, that's interesting because in my um, other book that came out recently called um, Inclusive Conversations, Fostering Equity, Empathy, and Belonging Across Difference, I wrote a chapter about forgiveness and I was coming at forgiveness very much from um, a faith, very much from a biblical per, you yes. know, perspective. And uh, my, my team, actually, when they read that chapter, you know, helped me to um, go a little bit further about forgiveness with accountability, right? Mm. And so forgive, but because the forgiveness helps you, right? The forgiveness right. helps you. Yes. Right? But that doesn't mean that the other person shouldn't be accountable. And, and then I read some, some work of, from Desmond Tutu and his daughter, um, their book, um, and I'm not going to turn my head, so I'm not waiting for <laughs> sitting right there. And they talked about um, forgiving, you know, when you're ready. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, you, and so you, you may not you know, so this idea that we just need to forgive because right. is the so quote the Christian thing to do. And even when we talked about when we saw the um, um, the Charleston, South Carolina AME Church, yes. you know, her right, and and, and the um, the survivors said, you know, we, we forgive him. Right. Yeah, and 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 even so many of I remember I remember that incident so vividly because so many allies and advocates called for forgiveness. Like two hours later, right? Five hours later. Wait, let's let's go through the grief and loss process. When when we think about when we think about why we have to forgive, it's usually because there has been a transgression and there has been some type of loss, whether the loss is physical, whether the loss is emotional, whether the loss is relational. And so then we have to allow ourselves to go through the grief and loss process, which and one of the, the stages of loss is anger. Right? I, I, I can give myself permission to be angry about this. And, and I can give myself permission to be outwardly angry about this because I think part of black fatigue is that internalization of anger. And then what that then does to our bodies, what that then does to our spirits as well. Right, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and so we know, and I have this in the chapter on, on black women's fatigue, the angry black woman, right? <laughs> Brittany, Brittany J. Harris on my uh, team wrote on, in our um, blog, you know, yeah, we're angry and we have a reason to be angry. Yes. And suppressing that anger 
um, is also not good for our health. Is that, no. is that right? Oh, definitely. So above our kidneys sit our two adrenal glands, and they're responsible for the production of adrenaline, and that mixes with cortisol. So our cortisol is known as our stress hormone. And when I am triggered, when that fight or flight system is triggered, so I have my hand up again, so that amygdala is triggered, then, I'm con then the neural uh, transmitters, those synapses are communicating in a way where I'm saying things, I'm doing things. And what happens when I can't run or I can't, when I can't run or I can't fight? Well, then what happens to all that cortisol? It gets reabsorbed back into our body, right? And so cortisol, which is why when we look at, you know, heart disease among black women, right? I think the number one killer of black women, more than I think three or four cancers combined. And a lot of heart disease for, for black women is very much stress related. I know the, um, the I think the Baltimore City, and, and this is where we're located, health department, uh, passed out an article several years ago looking at what's killing black babies and looking at the, the effects of a mother while pregnant uh, experiencing racism and how that cortisol then goes, is transmitted into the, you know, to the fetus. And so understanding that this is not, a, a understanding that pain and struggle is not a normal way to go through life, right? And, and, and you talk about this in your book, Changing the Narrative, and, and you, you hit on that, you know, um, being black is, uh, is a burden, I think a burden, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing what you said, and changing it to racism. Right. Is yeah. burdensome. Racism is hard, right? And, and, so, and so allowing ourselves to see ourselves outside of this system um, mm -hmm. in, in a way that allows us to experience other emotions outside of anger. I remember when, um, when George Floyd was killed and we were doing black affinity groups. And one of the things that came up that I, that I was actually surprised about was how many black staff, staff that we talked to said they felt guilty for having moments of joy in, in this time period. And you know, I talked about joy being one of the major forms of resistance to racism, right? Laughter and love being one of the major forms of resistance, feeling at peace, feeling calm, you know, being one of the major forms of resistance. So one of the things that, um, you know, I am, I, um, I'm of the generation of the baby boom generation. So, and I'm learning a lot from my uh, younger uh, colleagues um, about, um, because I think the activism today that you all talk about is, is a little bit different than we, that we talked about. So one of the reasons that I wrote the book mm -hmm. is because hearing from, and I think you know, I said that in the press, I kept hearing from millennials, we're tired, we're exhausted. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're 35 years old, are you? <laughs> And they would give me the side eye like, hey, you know, I know that I'm exhausted. Don't be telling me I'm not exhausted. So it really made me think. So I had the opportunity to, um, through, through another colleague, to um, talk with um, Andrew Young. I didn't talk with Andrew Young, but she, she knows him. And she talked with Ambassador Andrew Young. And she asked about Black fatigue. And he said, no. He said, during the civil rights, he said, no, we wouldn't have called it fatigue. He said, you know, Dr. King would, would say to me, um, he would, I would say, I've got a migraine headache. And Dr. King would say, well, that's all right. Get on the plane. Your migraine headache will be gone, you know. Mm -hmm. So we, we couldn't, he said, we couldn't acknowledge it because that would show some, some kind of weakness. Right. And so I think what's new about this, because people have said to me, well, what's new about your book? I said, well, I think what's new is the way that this generation of activists is approaching it, is, is talking about it, and is, is saying, you know, rest. They're saying, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to kill myself, right? Yes. I'm not do you see that as well? Oh, definitely, definitely so. And and I love I love the human approach to it because you know when we talk about what has been denied to us, right? The ability to be human has, mm -hmm. is one of the first things. Our humanity is one of the first things that's true. So so you're not allowed to be tired, 
right? You're not allowed to have a headache. You're not allowed to have an ailment because, and then, it, and then it's been so programmed in us that having those things makes, makes me weak versus makes me human. And, and so when you talk about the way that you talk about black fatigue is in such a humanistic approach and, and a mindful approach, which is something that I'm a huge proponent of, let's sit and acknowledge this, right? And, and, give, and give ourselves permission to rest and give ourselves permission to, to turn the TV off. And I think one of the things too, and I was talking about to, to my mom uh, a few weeks ago, and she's also a part of the baby boomer generation. And uh, one of the things that I think that you all have that we don't in, in, our, in our, uh, day and age is you all have more communal connections we, where we rely on technology and not to say anything is, is wrong with technology. Technology is a great tool, but technology is not going to give me a hug after watching the news, you know, wh where go to her neighbor's house or go to how important church and faith was, you know, I'm, the church is calling a meeting six o'clock. We're meeting here and we're going to, we're going to process and we're going to cry and we're going to you know, eat some food and we're going, we're going to have this, this process. And, and, and you talk about that too, in that healing circle piece, we're going to have this informalized or, or quote unquote, non-traditional healing circle where, um, and now I think a lot of the pressure on younger generations of, of black people with, with technology is fast and big and, mm -hmm. you know, and immediate, right. You want to, success is fast and big and it comes at the expense of, who you are and, and you become um, an intentional martyr, right? I have it, it, almost competitions, you know, Mary Frances, I haven't slept all day. And you say, well, I haven't slept all week. I've been grinding, <laughs> been, you know, it becomes a competition. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yes, 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 yeah. For me as, oh, I'm sorry, no, go ahead. No, 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 I think for me as a, as a woman, as a business owner, as a black woman business owner, when I started my business in 1984, because I've been in business for 36 years, it was like, and I left a corporate um, job and they said, oh, let her go. She'll be back anyway. She's not going to be able to make it. Wow. So it was like, that is not going to happen. And so I felt that I just had to keep working, keep working, working on vacations, take my laptop with me on vacation, sitting on the beach, you know, still. And I would be proud of that, right? Yes. Today with my laptop and I wrote two proposals. Right? <laughs> so, and, and I, I didn't think that I had, I couldn't fail. Right. Could not fail. Mm -hmm. Right. That was just always just, I mean, I, you know, because all of my life, even my high school guidance counselor, I think I wrote about this in the book too. My high school guidance counselor told me that um, uh, it was too lofty a goal for me to go to the university of Rochester in Rochester, New York. I should go to a, a, a two years, even after I've been accepted, I've been accepted to the school, but wow. Um, and then she told me that, that that was too lofty a goal. So it was like, I'm going to show you. I'm mm -hmm. going to show you. So I think I've lived my life with, I'm going to show you, you know. And, and I, what I am learning from, you know, your generation is that, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to prove it to anybody. Right. And, and I can focus on, and I think, again, and that's what racism does, right? It, 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 it programs you. And one of the things that I talk to parents about, too, is um, the importance of talking to their children of color, black and brown children, about their race before trauma happens, right? That, that does something to children when we talk about race through the lens of trauma and this is happening to you or people are going to look at you like this and so you have to be twice as good and when you do this and I have to talk to my son about, the, when that's their introduction to blackness, blackness does become a burden. That's what you say, blackness becomes this burden, right? Mm -hmm. And so versus, versus racism becoming the burden versus that thing outside of me being burdensome that we all, should be bearing the brunt of, right? Really, really, it should be on the people who are being racist. And so I think when we, when we live our lives 
programmed to know that we're going to have to be twice as good to be accepted. I remember uh, having an internship and um, my, my supervisor was this uh, wonderful uh, immigrant from the Philippines. And she said, um, you know, women like us need three letters behind our name in order to, to, to even be invited into the room. Even, even though, you know, people are not gonna be as smart as you, right? Just, just acknowledge that. But, but in order for you to even be invited to the room and, and to be called upon when you have a question, you're gonna have to finish your degree. And, and how that stood with me and how, you know, part of my journey in, in having a PhD is, is leading with that and learning when to not because I don't have to, right? And, you know, and, and so what is that, is that because it's, it's showing a level of expertise or is it something that I'm hiding behind because I have to prove to you all that I'm smart enough or that I'm good enough and, and how exhausting that, that becomes as well, you know, and how, and how with that, when you, in, in our efforts to prove uh, or to justify um, worthiness, it becomes an, then it becomes an effort to justify rest, right? I'll take a nap today because I haven't slept in two weeks. I'll, I'll be nice to my children because I haven't spent time with them. Uh, you know, all month. You know, it become it becomes this justification all of our life, or even or even with nice things. I'm going to allow myself. Right, we work so hard, but then we don't we don't. You know, I'm going to get this um, dress because I've been working so hard. Right, versus I like the dress. I'm worthy of getting the dress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do we how do we undo this? I mean, so I mean, you, you've already talked a little bit about how we undo it, but how, give us some practical. Yes. You know. We, how do we move from black fatigue to black joy, you know, sort of and mat and mass, you know, so that it, it's more of us experiencing black joy than experiencing black fatigue. Yes, yes. So one, I'm a big fan of practicality and permission. I remember being in grad school and I had a brilliant supervisor. Uh, his name was Ronald Hobson. And he said the purpose of a therapist is to give your clients permission to give themselves permission. All right, so, so our job is to give you permission to, and, and that's what you do, right? I'm giving you all permission to do this, to, to do this work and to take ownership of this work. And when we, when we have been raised and, and it's been reinforced that, that we look for an external approval, right? I'm showing it to them, I'm proving myself to them. Then one of the things that's taken away is our self, our, our autonomy, and, but then the gift of giving ourselves permission to, to experience joy. And so one of the things that I, one of the ways that I start, I start very, very small. Where is it easiest for you to start? And so um, I remember one of the tenets of mindfulness, I remember going to a mindfulness retreat and one of the, uh, the, the monks broke up the day into work, rest, play, and worship. And, um, and something practical, writing, what does my day look like out of those four quadrants? And when, it, when we think about rest and play, so many of us don't even know what, what play is. Right? What, what, would that, what would that mean to you to, to say, I had a great time, I'm going to plan a day, a play, a day of play. I saw a meme on, uh, on social media talking about uh, Black people frolicking, right? I've never frolicked before. I've never had the opportunity to do this before. And so can I start in five-minute increments by doing something that brings me joy, whether it's dance, and it doesn't have to be this grandiose thing. It doesn't have to be something that, that costs money. Can I, you know, can I start with five minute increments, and then can I allow it to move into other areas of my life? Um, and I think that that is great too. I'm also a big fan of self-soothing statements. Um, you know, one of the things that I teach people and we've been teaching people through this pandemic is something very simple, hand over heart. When I feel that my chest is getting tight because I'm, I'm reading another article 
on, on race or racism, or I'm watching another video, which I do not recommend at all, um, but I'm, I'm watching this video, or I'm, I'm listening to this person talk, getting in tune with our body. Our bodies have these cues. And so one of the things that trauma disrupts is this beautiful brain-body connection that we have, right? We, I, I feel this emotion and my brain sends me a signal that, okay, you know what, you need to do something about it. But when we are in that grind mentality and I don't have time to be tired, we learn to overlook our body's cues and our body's signals that we need to rest. So I'm overlooking, like you said, that headache. I'm overlooking not having eaten all day or overeating all day. And so putting that hand over our heart and reminding, I am safe. I feel protected. There, there is someone in my life that makes me feel safe. I, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. This too shall pass. I, I deserve to feel worthy. I am worthy of the life I desire. Speaking those affirmations out loud to ourselves um, literally stops um, when we're experiencing anxiety or depress depressive thoughts, it literally stops those thoughts because it, it targets another area of our brain. And, it, mm. and it's shown to, 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 back, to slow back down our heart rate. And so what is it that I can tell myself in the moment? And I'm also a big fan of um, starting our day with intention. And so for many of us, our phones have become our number one, right? Our, I wake up, I'm grabbing the phone first thing. I go to sleep, I'm grabbing the phone before I even go to sleep. Before, before I digest anyone else's thoughts, what are my thoughts for the day? One of the things that I teach is something called segment intending. And so I, you know, many of us are to-do list people. I'm a, I'm a to-do list person, right? I have these things to do on my list. And, and then we tie in an emotional component. How do I want to feel doing this activity and how do I want to feel afterwards? And so, you know, here, I want to feel inspired. I'm already, I'm already feeling inspired by having this conversation with you. And how do I want to feel afterwards? I want to feel proud. I want to feel thankful. And so if I'm noticing during, during this, this, in this segment of my day, right, it's just a segment of my day that I'm going away from that emotional desire. How do I do a quick check-in with myself and bring it back around? How do I give myself permission to, to uh, redirect this course or this, this framework that I'm, that I'm living in? And so... I'm a big fan of incorporating uh, self-care and, and moving from that black fatigue to black joy in activities that we're already doing. Because one of the things that we also um, have to give up is this notion of I don't have enough time, right? I don't have enough time. I, I would love to do that, but I don't have enough time. But someone calls me and they need something, I'm right there, right? So someone calls, you know, I'm on social media three hours a day without even, without even having a second thought. So incorporating it into the activities that we're already doing. That's, that, that's really very, very helpful. Let me talk about a couple of things that you said. So black people frolicking. Mm -hmm. So people frolicking could be interpreted as black people lazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> talk to me. Yes. Talk to me about that. Oh, gosh. And you, you, um, you, you reference post-traumatic slave syndrome in your book. But that term of laziness, right, and how it was used as a form of oppression, for us, you know, here we literally have built mansions and school systems, right? Universities that are grandiose. And we have, you know, <laughs> given up our babies to be wet nurses and we have worked nonstop to, to educate. And then yet we still have this notion of, of black laziness. And so part of this work is understanding um, something that we teach called data versus narrative, right? The data is, is that we are hard workers. The data is that you oftentimes, uh, Black people have more than one job to maintain a, a level of income. 
right? So I'm literally leaving one job to go to another job and then I'm parenting or par partnering or, you know, doing something else. And yet I still feel that, that taking a break is something wrong with that. And so again, part of this permission giving is giving myself to think different, something different. And so a simple, a simple sentence that, that people will say, or that will walk, through, walk uh, people through is, I'm willing to think about this differently. I'm willing to think about rest differently. And again, literally saying that out loud. So, so I don't have this internal struggle where, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a nap, but the entire time I'm thinking, oh, I should be doing this. Oh, I should be doing this. Giving ourselves permission to think about um, our accomplishments. And then I think too, it comes with education. So much of, so much of racism for us is experience that oftentimes it's exhaustive to, exhaustive to learn about all the things that we have actually done and accomplished because we're, we're spit, uh, spending so much of our time just trying to navigate through it, but actually learning to debunk the narrative with data, right? That, that data versus narrative piece. This is the narrative. What is the data that I have that counters that? And, and how do I, and again, if I'm willing to think something different, how then do I give myself permission to experience ease? to experience ease because that is my birthright, not something that I have to justify. Right. And I think, I think for me too, Dr. Tara, it has to do with um, the narrative that's in our heads about um, white people and about, yes. you know, like pleasing white people. Yes. Well, respectability, you know, is part of that, right? The respectability, mm -hmm. politics kinds of things. But it's, it's like, if I do this, then I'm going to be perceived as this. Yes. And yes. The whole race is going to be perceived yes. as this. Yes, yes. Me taking a nap is going to set us back 200 years. <laughs> 200 years, yes. And, and I think part of that work has been for me, and, and this is my own internal work, and, and I'll share something uh, too. I, I, I am a huge uh, survivor of, of that grind culture, right? I'm, I'm a survivor. I, and a, an example is I had my son when I was uh, in my first year of graduate school, went back to school two weeks later. Didn't miss a beat. Was in school up until the day I had him. Went back to school two weeks later. Never missed a beat. I, I look back. I'm like, oh my gosh, why? Why would I do that to myself? You know? And uh, because I had something to prove, right? I had I had to prove that I could still get this degree versus versus rest. And I think when we start to understand that racism is a system, that is something um, that is external. From us, you know, when we when we talk about okay, I have to show them that I'm respectable. I have to I have to be the spokesperson for for this entire race. That that means that I have internalized this form of systemic oppression. And so part of us unlearning this and experiencing black joy is putting it back on the onus. I remember Toni Morrison watching one of her clips, and you have her quoted um in in, in your book as well. Um, she said, you know, racism is not just for us to talk about this is this is for white people to begin having this conversation about and deciding what they are going to do about it and and every time I sign up to be the spokesperson, I'm taking that responsibility on and I'm and I'm winning them from from their work right you know in, in to to dismantle the system and that's fatiguing right because fatiguing. We <laughs> yes, yes 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 that is fatiguing. that is fatiguing yes. it's damaging and, and one of the things racism is designed to kill us. It's designed mm -hmm. to kill us, whether literally, whether physically, whether emotionally, whether nutritionally. And you, you know, you also reference that in your book too. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm so stressed. I'm eating. I'm overeating. I'm undereating, or I don't have access to things. You know, it, it's, it's very much designed to do that. And so, again, 
then the stance becomes how do I how do I resist it? And we've been taught that we resist it through through anger and staying up and being you know more committed to the fight and 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 the fight looks this way. But giving ourselves different options on how the fight the fight looks also like raising children who are happy. Right? Raising children who are who are self-assured, raising children who are able to think outside the box in the classroom, navigating conversations with your child's teacher where, you know, for black parents, um, the conversation usually starts whether uh, the conversation usually starts with behavior, whether or not the behavior is positive or negative, right? It's there's such a joy to have in class or they're a troublemaker, and then we get to academic potential. And you know, dismantling is, is leading the conversation with academic potential and promise and, and you know, expo and demanding exposure to things that my child can see representation to. Yeah, you know, that happened with my son. My son, who is, um, I, I don't know if you read that, that chapter. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. and yeah, so, you know, he's, he's Harvard, um, yes. Harvard Duke Princeton grad. Uh, Cornell West was his dissertation advisor. Oh, nice. But when he, was, when he was young, it was about his behavior. And yes. Joe was always tall for his age and, you know, mostly in white schools. And so it was not until he was in fourth grade, his fourth grade teacher said, you know, I think the only thing wrong with Joe is like, he's brilliant, you, you, you know? And so he was probably bored or, you know, or whatever. Yes, but he, yes. Now, I, you know, you're, you're the, um, <laughs> the psychologist. I don't know, well, we went to a psychologist and she wasn't really very helpful, a white woman. And she basically said that, um, that he's of average intelligence. He's just wired differently than everybody else. That was her, that was her answer to us, right? Wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> So, so yeah, but but you know, to to your point, um, in terms of the, the conversation that um, teachers have about mm -hmm. black children, it's about it's about the behavior, about behavior, necessarily about his academics. And, and as soon as somebody said that Joe was brilliant, he became brilliant because, yes. yeah, he believed. So he began to believe that. Oh, right, he's like, oh, I'm smart, right? So so telling him that. But even we as parents back then. I was trying to get this behavior, you know, exactly. the right, boy, you better, you better straighten yeah. up at school and do what you're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's how we've been taught to parent, right? That's, that, again, that is a part of that post-traumatic slave syndrome. We have been taught to control our children. And that is something that has been passed down, not only from black parents, but also to white educational systems. Right. And so, and so we lose sight of academic brilliance and intelligence and potential because we want you to be the most liked, and you, if your teacher says something, you do it, and you don't, you know, question them, and you sit down and you be quiet. Well, why children get a chance to run across the classroom, right? <laughs> you know, and, and explore and be curious, and and that's how the brain, you know, that's how the brain grows. And so, and so again, seeing those things, giving ourselves permission to do those things as forms of resistance, right? Right. That that joy is seeing seeing your son happy in fourth grade, mm -hmm. seeing his eyes perk up, right recognized his potential yeah and he he's he to this day he's intense i mean you know, he's 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 a very compassionate but he's still you know it's still this sort of yeah i, I there was damage there was damage that was done you know yeah. and to, to this day he he's just really really and he lacks self-confidence even though he's brilliant and even though he's a, a assistant professor at duke um mm -hmm. he's award-winning professor you know everybody you know thinks he, he's he's just amazing but he's um, he he's you know, as an introvert. He doesn't you know he's not going to come forward and mm -hmm. you know um, yeah. So I I I I see that in terms of the dance. But you know he did have parents who were able to you know um, advocate for him. Definitely. After the after the brilliance thing came came out, um, when folks tried to you know uh, say that he was this or he was that, I was like no. So he was the valedictorian at a male Jesuit high school. Wow. But two day two days before graduation. 
my father, whoever he was, McNamara, called me and said, you know, um, such and such, the white boy, his average was 0. 0.000000 something something higher than Joe. So Joe is no longer the valedictorian. So we can't have him do the, do the, um, you know, the, the speech. The speech. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh no, that's not happening. Right. <laughs> Why is it two days before? Exactly. That means that you all were searching. Y'all, you all were looking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. I said, mm -hmm. oh no, that's not happening. So mm -hmm. what ended up happening is both of them, you know, gave the, um, the speech gave a speech and my son's speech was really very much a radical speech about the racism in the school that's probably why they didn't want him to speak so i mean so parents need so so if, if when parents are more educated about and understand about how this all plays out we're able to be better you know better definitely and not and not um not believe the narrative right you know? yeah yeah and, and one of the things too that you talk about too um, I'm just thinking about just for, for child development. So I talk about the importance of relationships in this work and how relationships are healing to this work. And so for children, they have seven needs and I only wanna talk about two. So the one, the one need that's very, very important is a need called delight in me. And that's the foundation of self-worth. And that is when we delight in people just for who they are. So, you know, when we came on here, I was happy just, I, I didn't matter to me if, whether or not you've gotten this contract or this, is that delight to see you as there. The other one is a, a need called enjoy with me, and that's the foundation of self-esteem. And so enjoy with me focuses on reinforcement for what I'm able to do. That, that is what builds, uh, self-esteem is built off of I'm getting reinforced for this behavior, and children are hardwired to connect. And so I'm going to continue to do this behavior, whether the behavior is positive or negative, right? If we connect by me throwing the chair across the room, then guess what? That's what's being reinforced. That's what my identity is built off on. And so I'll ask this question to educators. Oftentimes when we look at uh, the needs that children have, who's more likely to have these needs met, white children or children of color? And overwhelmingly, it's, it's understanding of white children. And so when we think about the ability to do, one of the things that we have often struggled with, and when you, when you mentioned uh, about you know, the, the confidence piece, is when that shift has occurred where the reinforcement has been, again, to produce, right? It's, it's the, the reinforcement comes on my ability to be the first or the only or one of few. And so my ability, my identity comes, okay, um, you're, because you've done this or because you've accomplished this or because you've achieved this, this is when you get that connection. This is when you get that praise versus, am I just allowed to be, right? Am I, am I just allowed to be, you know, to, to be myself, to get that reinforcement? Am I allowed to get that delight? And so again, when we think about that joy, allowing ourselves, allowing ourselves to, to rewrite our narrative of what success is, allowing ourselves to rewrite the narrative of what happiness is or, or peace is or, or self-care is and giving ourselves permission to meet that delight for ourselves. Can I wake up and say, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit in my bed for 15 minutes. I can't give myself all day. I'm not there yet, right? But, but I'm gonna give myself 10 minutes. I'm gonna sit, I'm gonna sit here for 10 more minutes and, and just think about things that I like about it. And if I can't start with myself, Things that I like, I like watching the sunrise. I like doing such and such. But to get into that mindset of allowing ourselves to be, and and you and and I and I say that understanding the historical context of that word too, because usually to be means you know having poise and etiquette and everything else. But just to allow myself to be a person first. Yeah, that that's wonderful. And one more area that I want to um, I want to talk with you about, and that is um, therapy. You mentioned therapy, and in my book. In the book, the chapter, particularly Black Man, the book um, <clears throat> on Black Men, and, uh, you know, that Black men um, are not as likely to seek mental health um, treatment. 
And so what are, what are your thoughts about that? Um, and how do we encourage that? Well, how do we, how do we destigmatize yes. therapy? Well, I do think it's coming. I, I, I think more and more male celebrities are beginning to talk about it. And so for that, I am very, very grateful. I think that it starts with giving, giving our children permission and, and giving ourselves permission as adults to experience the range of emotions. And so when we look at, and, and, and the reason why I'm so focused on, on children and families is because so many of this stuff starts in childhood and it just is a continuation into our adult lives. And so when we look at words that are often given to black males, we hear words such as aggressive and argumentative and angry right, at the age of three and four. And so, and so they're already being tasked um, to present anger and aggression. And, and that's what is represented or shown back to them. And so when we think about that, then how are they taught to cope? They're taught to cope by womanizing, they're taught to cope by drinking, they're taught to cope by fighting, they're taught to cope by, by keeping it all inside. And so I think one of the ways that um, we allow, especially black males but, uh, and, and black people also in general to, to experience the full range of emotions. So there's six universal emotions that we all have, regardless of race, age, gender, socioeconomic status. And, and they are joy, anger, fear, sadness, shame, and curiosity. And starting to allow our children to experience these emotions, starting to allow ourselves to acknowledge and experience these emotions and then give ourselves permission to, to figure out, okay, how, how do these emotions manifest themselves in my behavior? And then acknowledging too, um, when things are not okay. I think we have to break the narrative that, so oftentimes um, we acknowledge that things are not okay, but then we keep going, right? I'm angry about this, but you know what? I, get, I have to get to work in 15 minutes. Let me go ahead and get dressed. And so even if I can't address it right now, giving myself permission and committing to myself that I'm going to come back to this. So there's a, a, an activity that we'll often do with people called feelings versus needs. And it's, you know, think about how you've been feeling for the past week, just write them down. And then with the needs category, right? What is it that you need in, either to, in, in order to either sustain this feeling, right? If it's a feeling of peace or fun or calmness or to bring some comfort to you. And people struggle with that because I've never had to, address I don't I didn't I don't expect to have to address the need and then I think destigmatizing what therapy is and what is not and also understand the historical context about that too you know around that too and, and how therapy has not always been beneficial uh, to black and brown people but but also acknowledging that I can talk to someone I can I can release this and giving ourselves permission to start with where again where it's easiest so maybe I don't want to talk about racism. Maybe I want to talk about, you know, my partner or my spouse or my child or whatever happened. And, and over time, if I'm able to, to get a relationship going, then I can delve in. And, and a good therapist will walk you through that process. And also saying it, you know, we don't ever have to call it therapy. We can just call it talking to each other. We can talk, call it getting together, whatever I need to do to help myself destigmatize it. And then one of the things, too, is um, destigmatizing, because we, uh, we both mentioned in this, you know, in this process. And, and, and you know, the referencing, I, I reference, I remember uh, partnering with the church and addressing like mental health and stigma and giving ourselves permission to, to you know, focus on those things that bring me joy, whatever things are pure, to, to think on those things and, and above all else, guard your heart and your mind. And so what does that look like in practice? That looks like releasing some things that are not serving me and are not beneficial to me too. So I book about barbershop therapy. Yes. And yes. So that there are some, uh, <clears throat> there's some efforts around the country yes. that, uh, you know, black men in barbershops, right? Mm -hmm. 
and they're actually training some of the um, barbers to be able to, they're not, not, you know, obviously they're not trained, right. they're trained in the, you know, classical sense, but right. they're um, yeah, mental health first aid. Yes. And, and, yeah. and I think too, I think that's such an important point meeting people where their comfort level is. I may not be comfortable coming into your office and looking at this, you know, but, but meet me here and, and we can have this conversation. And a, and a lot of times recognizing those sacred places for us that, that have been places of relief, release and relief. And then how do we incorporate self-care practices into those as well? Right. Yeah. And the faith community as well, you know, is offering yes. those kinds of services. Yeah. Mm-hmm has been an amazing conversation. You have offered so much. Um, and I really, I'm trying to supplement, obviously, the book with um, some experts and some real life experiences around, um, you know, around Black fatigue, because it is, Black fatigue is intergenerational, as you yes. were talking about how the stress, um, you know, gets um, into our system and it gets passed down um, generation to generation. Mm-hmm. I think just by, that we have to start acknowledging that we are intergenerationally fatigued yes. from trying to fight for equity um, that isn't coming. And we see this now with the you know, most recent Black Lives Matter protests and what's happening you know, in, in our world, we see this. And I think having ways to be able to not just cope, but thrive in, you know, in spite of it, in spite of it all. Mm-hmm. And I, that's what you're offering. And, and so thank you so much for uh, being my very first guest, yes. very first podcast. Uh, and I look forward to um, many more conversations with you because you just bring so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and congratulations in advance for um, a book that I know I will be getting um, just another, another wonderful resource for us. So thank well, you, you. Will de- you will definitely, you, you, you will definitely be getting it because I am going to gift you a book for oh, thank you. spending time with me um, today. So again, Dr. Tara, thank you so much. And could you tell um, our listeners where to find you? Yes, yes, yes. They can find us, find me on, uh, if they are on social media, I'm on Instagram at it's I-T-S, Dr. D-R, Tara, T-A-R-A. Um, and also on Facebook, I do a Facebook Live uh, session, Dr. Tara Tuesdays, where we talk about healing and relationships. They can also go to my website, which is www.sage, S-A-G-E, wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, group, G-R-O-U-P.com. Thank you so much. All right, thank you.